So, and um, as you know, I'm talking about the qualities that the sea shares with God. And last week we looked at the first three, which were that both the sea and God are our refuge, they both lead and guide us, and they both have the power to transform. And this morning we're going to look at the next three. So the next thing that I love about the sea is how big it is, and how vast it is. Now get ready for some mild boasting and heavy name dropping. I've been in the sea in Wales. I've been in the sea in England. I've been in the sea in Spain. I've been in the sea in Egypt. I've been in the sea in Turkey. And I've been in the sea in Abu Dhabi. I've been in the sea in Ecuador. And most recently, I've been in the sea in Kuwait. In summary, I've been in the sea in lots of different places. And I know how fortunate I am to be given the opportunity to do that. And the sea I've been in the most often is, I know I've mentioned it before, Pendine. We went back and forth to Pendine for all of my childhood and stopped, I think, just as I became a teenager. So I'm very familiar with the sea in Pendine. I've swam and bodyboarded and doggy paddled and splashed around in big portions of that sea. But you know, however many times I go back there, I'll never have swum in it all. As you already know, I spent most of the time we had um, at the beach in Kuwait in the sea, but I didn't even begin to, to explore its waters. And in Egypt, um, we went on sn- snorkeling trips and I saw lots of the sea, but I didn't really scratch the surface compared to how much sea there really was. And the same can be said for God. Now, I came to know Jesus as my own personal saviour when I was seven. And I'm sure I've said it before, but I don't know why I did it. <laughs> I don't know what the circumstances leading up to that moment were, but I remember waking up in the top bunk of my bunk bed that my father had made for me and crawling to the end of my bed and giving my life to the Lord. Oh. (laughs) And it was just something I obviously thought that I should do that morning. Um, When I was seven, um, I imagine I didn't know that much about God, probably hardly anything. I would have known who God was and what he was capable of and I must have known that he loved me and I'm guessing that I heard in chapel that you should give your life to Jesus and so I did. And what more is there to know about God to gain salvation really other than that he is God and he loves you and he wants you to love him in return. The first time I went in the sea, whenever that was, probably before I was seven, I learned very quickly that the sea is wet. Probably in the first instant, I would have put my foot in the shallows and immediately thought, well, that's wet. And now, probably over 20 years later, when I see the sea, whatever country I'm in, whatever continent I'm on, I know that the sea that I'm going in is going to be wet. Now, ma'am, you've been in the sea in St. Lucia. Is that sea wet? Pauline, Mm -hmm. I've never been in the sea in Corfu. Is it wet there? Anywhere. <laughs> Bari Island. Bari Island is wet? <laughs> Marine, the other side of the world. Is the sea wet in Australia? Definitely. <laughs> well, there we are. When it, wherever you go in the world, whatever sea you dip your toe in, it will always be wet, and they all have that in common. Now, I've never been in the Dead Sea, but the Dead Sea is extremely salty. You don't know salt water until you've been in the Dead Sea. When I swam in the sea in Egypt, I learned that the most exotic of fish had no problem swimming around you. They're not just in the deep recesses of the sea. 
In Turkey, I learned that the sea can be so warm that it's almost like getting in the bath. In Rest Bay, I learned that you can have waves three times the size of you. In Abu Dhabi, I learned that the sea can be so clear that you can see your feet paddling beneath you. In Spain, I learned that in some seas, you don't have to walk a mile to get up to your waist. What's your point? I hear you all crying. Well, when I'd only ever swam in the sea in Pendine, there was so much about the sea that I didn't know. In fact, if I'd only ever swam in that sea, I wouldn't be able to do this series. What I did know, though, is that the sea was wet. And whatever else I learned about the sea along the way, I found that the sea was still wet. And I've come to rely on the fact that the sea will always be wet. When I was seven and I gave my life to Jesus, I knew very little about him. All I really knew that he, was that he loved me. Then as I grew and heard more of God's word, I learned more about him. When I learned about Noah, I learned that God hates sin. When I learned about Job, I learned that God has authority over everything, including the devil. When I learned about Abraham, I learned that God's timing is different to ours, and he's faithful to his promises. When I learned about Isaac, I learned that God will provide a substitute sacrifice. When I learned about Joseph, I learned that God has a plan for our lives. When I learned about Moses, I learned that God is mighty to save. When I learned about Elijah, I learned that life will have its ups and downs. When I learned about Esther, I learned that we're all called for such a time as this. And I could go on. Since I was seven, I've learned more and more about God and who he is and what he's done and what he's promised to do. But however much I learn about him, I always find the first thing I learned about him rings true and sews together every other detail I've learned about God. And that is that he loves me. God's love streams through all these stories from the Old Testament and rings loud and true in the New Testament when we see God step down from heaven's glory and take the form of a man and live a sinless life and die a sinful death, all because he loves me and because he loves you so very, very much. So I love that the sea is so big and vast because there's so much more for me to explore and learn and love about it, but I can always be certain it'll be wet. With God... I love that he is so big and mighty and vast, and there is so much to learn about him. But I'm thankful that whatever I learn more about him, I know that it will all be because of love. And when we were up the caravan and we went to the sea, I would always hope that there would be big waves, so that we could have fun riding them back to the shore. But sometimes you would get there and the sea would be still. No waves, no swells, completely still and quiet and peaceful. And when I was young, that was not what I wanted from the sea. But now as an adult, I can appreciate the joy of being still and at peace. And as most of you probably know, I work in the new theatre in Cardiff quite regularly as a front of house assistant, which means that sometimes I'll be the one greeting you at the door. Sometimes I'll be the one selling you a programme. Sometimes I'll be the one showing you to your seats. Sometimes I'll be the one who sells you your sweets. But most regularly, I'm behind the bar. And a lot of people who work at the theatre hate working for the busy shows behind the bar, especially shows that would be both busy and heavy drinkers, because the bar would be hectic. And people would be shouting at you from all directions, and you'd be manoeuvring between the other staff members, trying to get the glass that you need, and then back for the right wine, and it's just extremely busy. And as I said, some staff members hate uh, these shifts but I love them. (laughs) Uh, I think they're really fun 
I like that kind of pressure. Although if I had to do it all day, maybe I wouldn't. But it's just less than an hour before the show and 20 minutes um, in the interval. So I really enjoy it. But when it's the early afternoon and there's a kid show on, you'll be lucky if anyone comes to the bar. Um, and even less likely that someone will come in the interval. It's the ice cream seller who needs to start panicking in those kind of shows. But when I'm on the bar for those shows and it's quiet and it's still and, well, it's just boring, frankly, I'd much rather have a line out the door for that hour than be standing there doing nothing. On a Saturday, there are two performances and after a busy two shifts on the bar, there is nothing I like more than sitting down. I'll come home and sit down on the couch and my father will say, why don't you go to bed? And I'll say, I want to, but I'm too tired to get there. Will you carry me? <laughs> he always says, no, I don't know. And when we have Mercy Church, I like to come in here just for a minute and enjoy some peace and quiet for a few moments. However much I'm enjoying the action in the other room. And my point is that whilst I sometimes enjoy the hectic, busy nature of life, I also like peace and quiet and stillness. Now, if I had to choose between a wavy sea and a still sea, I would still always choose a wavy sea because I think it's more fun. But sometimes you don't need fun. You just need rest and you need stillness and peacefulness. Now, I'm quite content in my life at the moment. I used to always be worrying about what I should be doing and comparing my life to others and panicking because I wasn't as far along as they were and things like that. And whilst I would still love to be in love and have a family of my own, I'm quite content with where I am. I seem to have grasped the idea of trusting God um, with the future. I'm happy in my work. I'm able to speak to my boss there about my faith quite openly. And everyone I work with knows that I'm a Christian and that I'm involved and regularly attend my church. And I'm confident that if they had a question about Christianity, they would know they can talk to me about it. I know that this is where God wants me to be for the moment. I don't earn a lot of money, but I don't need a lot of money right now. But though everything is ticking over nicely for me right now, life can still get hectic. It can still be overwhelming. Things can still rub you up the wrong way and fears and worries can still threaten to overwhelm you. Philippians 4 verse 7 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses <coughs> all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Isaiah 9 verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Matthew 11, 28 and, uh, to verse 30. Come to me, all you who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. And finally, John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. When our life is going as smoothly as it ever has, and when our life is as rough as it's ever been, we still long for peace and stillness. And there's only one place we can go for that peace that passes understanding, and that is to God. The, wor 
The world that God has created is amazing and it's fun and exciting and thrilling and inspiring and we can so easily fill up our time with it. And that's besides all the things that man has discovered for us to do with our time. And on top of that, our responsibilities in our work, homes and families. I've been in the sea having the best time riding the waves in the past. But when I got tired or fed up and wanted to stop, and the waves had continued to crash down on me, I can't, and so I can't even get a sentence out without having to dive under a wave. When I was running out for my next wave, I didn't mind having to crash through the waves. But when I was done, the waves became a nuisance and a burden. And all I wanted was for some stillness, for some peace, so I could relax and recoup and recover. What I'm trying to say is that yes, when life gets you down and things aren't going well, we all know that we can turn to God for peace. But when life is going great, but it's going and it's going and it's going, 100 miles per hour, we can still come to God and he will be our peace. Out there in the world, we have to worry about bills, visiting unwell family and friends, that big meeting in work, buying new school shoes for your children, getting your homework done, and a myriad of other things. But in God's presence, we can revel in his love and be at peace because nothing else matters. Now I'm talking about peace for the day or for the moment. We can find such peace with God, but we can also find everlasting peace. In an American study survey sorry, on phobias two years ago, it was discovered that over 20% of America, Americans actively fear death. They are very afraid of dying. Now, I'm afraid of sharks, and I'm afraid of moths, and I honestly think I'm a bit afraid of Turkish delight. <laughs> but I'm not afraid of dying. I'm afraid of other people dying, <laughs> people I love, because I don't want them to not be in my life. But even for the majority of those people, I'm not afraid of the result of their death. I'm not afraid of that because God has given me an everlasting peace about it. I can be confident in where I'm going when I die. I know that when I breathe out for the final time on this earth, my next breath in, will be in heaven's glory. Never shall I be separated from the love of God. Never will I be lost to eternity. Never will I fear what comes next because God has given me peace. It's nice to get in the sea when it's still. And it's nice to have a calm after the storm. But it's infinitely better to have the peace that only God can give. The peace that passes all understanding. And the final thing I love about the sea for this morning is something that I only came to love about the sea during my time in Kuwait. On one of the days we were there, we went on a boat trip to an island. And on the way there, we were essentially on a bus on the water. It wasn't particularly special. But on the way back, we were, there were less of us. And so we were on a smaller boat and we managed to go and sit upstairs so we could have the wind in our faces. As we were waking up, making our way back we were surrounded by a beautifully clear blue sea and a beautifully clear blue sky and I loved it I was looking at it and I was thinking that if they were the same shade of blue you wouldn't be able to tell where one ends and the other begins but unfortunately after much googling it seems that that never happens or if it does it's because there's a cloud covering the divide 
It's come close many times, but you can always see the divide between the two. Now, Benji and Joel's favourite Disney princess is Moana. (laughs) And she famously once sang, See the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me. She was yearning to go out into the world. She knew and understood that when you get to that line, you can't reach heaven or the sky. All you see is more sea, and the line will seemingly be further on. You could try and get to the place where the sky meets the sea, but you never will. Now there's a divide and there's a line. Now we did have a photo of the sky and the sea, which looked very similar, and there was a line. But I forgot to bring it. So I very quickly makeshifted one. Ma'am? No, it's not. That's not it. That's not it. Here it is. I did this just before we started. So this light blue is the sea and the dark blue is the sky. That was pretty much what the picture looked like, but it was a bit... Well, it was real. (laughs) And so, yeah, so I can't say any of that because... But as you can see, there's a line going across. And there was a line... Oh, on the actual picture, you'll just have to imagine that. And I want us um, to imagine something else uh, for a second. Let's imagine that this is a photo first. <laughs> and then let's imagine that this photo was taken by one of four men banished to a desert island. All of them looking at the heavens, wishing they could get there. Day after day, they'd sit together on the beach and look at the heavens and dream about being there with God and what it would be like. Over time, they learned to find food and eat, food food to eat, sorry, and animal skins to use for clothing. And they all started to become more comfortable in their situation. But they still look out onto this view and yearn to be with God in heaven. And one night, only three of the men gather together to look at the view. Concerned about the other man, they go and look for him. They find him with the savages who live on the island, building himself a hut to live in. And he tells them that he doesn't want to think about heaven or God anymore, because it's not getting him anywhere. Life isn't so bad here anyway, he says. I've got everything that I need, and soon I'll have a comfortable place to live here, and I have friends here. The next evening, there were only two of the men on the coast, thinking about and talking about God and heaven. Concerned, they go and look for the other man, and they find him not too far away from the first man in the hat. And when they ask him what he's doing there, he says, Well, I can't believe what this guy is doing. We aren't meant to be here, and here he is getting comfortable and living with these savages, doing things that definitely aren't going to get him to heaven. I'm going to keep an eye on him and keep a track of all his wrongdoings. I can't come with you and think about God. I'm too busy here. The next evening, when the men normally gather together, one man arrived to find the other swimming into the deep, and he calls him to come to the shore, which he does. And he asks him what he's trying to do. I'm trying to get to heaven. I don't want to be here anymore. If I train myself and get stronger, I'll be strong enough to swim there. God will be so impressed with how hard I work to be with him. I can't just sit there like you and wait and do nothing. And time went by, with one of the men falling further and further into the ways of the savages, the other engrossed in judging his life, and one working harder and harder to be strong enough uh, to work his, his own way to heaven. And the final man still came and sat on the beach and thought about God. 
Then one day a man appeared on the island, and he said to the man who was waiting on the beach that he was going to carry him on his back to heaven, but first he was going to gather the others together. So the man went off to find the other men. First he came upon the man who had built himself a hut on the island and called out to him. The man looked out the window and saw the rescuer there and said, No, why would I come with you when I have a mansion here? You don't have a mansion, the rescuer replied. It's just a dirty old hut. The savages that the man was living with convinced him that he was trying to trick him, trying to make him give up everything that he had worked for. So the man told the rescuer to leave him alone. The rescuer didn't have to walk much further to find the other man who was still keeping tabs on the first man. Thank goodness you're here, he said. Have you seen what he's been getting up to? He hasn't given God a second thought for ages. He's done this and that, and he hasn't done this or that. I've been watching him very carefully. He is a sinner. You haven't thought about God for all that time either, said the rescuer. And you too are banished to this island. You too are a sinner. My sins are nothing compared to his. Come, follow me. I'll show you what he gets up to in there. The rescuer didn't follow the brother, but headed back to the coast, where he saw the final man swimming back to the shore. You don't need to do this by yourself. Climb on my back, and I'll take you to heaven. You've got to be kidding me, says the man. I can't just let you do it. That's not going to impress God. I've got to get there myself. I've been working so hard, and soon I'll be able to get there by myself. You'll never get there. You might think it's possible, but it's not. There is, there is a divide that you can't span. It's too difficult. You will fail. You're just trying to trick me. You want me to fail. God will be pleased when he sees my efforts, and I will deserve my place in heaven because I've worked for it, not because someone else got me there. The rescuer returned to the first man and explained to him that the other men wouldn't be joining them. One of them chose to indulge, the other to judge, and the other to work. Only you chose God. Worried about whether God had forgiven him for what he had done, the rescuer explained that he wouldn't have sent him if he hadn't. <coughs> now I adapted that story from Max Lucado's Parable of the River, which I think brilliantly describes the different routes men can take in their relationship with God and their journey to heaven. Now we learn that there is a line between the heavens and the earth. and we can't cross it but Jesus our rescuer can he crossed the divide he left heaven and came to earth and made a way for us all to cross over not by our own merit but on his back treading the path that he made between the two all made possible by the wonderful cross of Jesus Christ. If it wasn't for the cross of Calvary, we would never be able to cross over the line where the sky meets the sea. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, But we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out 
in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgressions of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offence. For if by the one, man offense many, the one man's offence many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offence resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offences resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offence death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offence judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that, so that as sin reigned in death, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.